Welcome to the Building the Cooperative Classroom podcast, the official podcast of the Johnson & Johnson Cooperative Learning Institute. Welcome to the Building the Cooperative Classroom podcast. This is Adam Rubichuk, and uh, this is part three of our interview with David Johnson. So we pick up with David telling us a little bit more about those early days when he was in Muncie growing up in, at Ball State University. And he talks a lot more about sort of the early days of his um, work with the civil rights movement and sort of his awakening into the prejudices of um, the situation in the area in which he grew up and his uh, motivation to get involved and try to make a difference. So that's enough of me talking. And here is David. Well, I, I have I have a question kind of related to to your to your journey right from, you know, from the, the beginning. When did you know? When was the aha moment? When did you know we've got something that really works? There are many, not just one. One was when I read Alport. And uh, I didn't know it then, but these five, five uh, issues around creating, reducing prejudice was first discussed by Goodman Watson in 1947, and then by a sociologist named Williams in 1947. And Alport just took sort of the general thought and pulled it together in, a, in his book, The Nature of Prejudice. He didn't invent it or create it. You know, uh, uh, he just took the current uh, knowledge base and went went with it, but it took a while for me to find the roots and so forth. But um, once I saw those, especially the cooperation and the personal relationships, well, maybe I'll, you won't want to use this, but maybe I'll backtrack. And, then, and the way I got involved in the civil rights movement was um, I come from a very religious uh, family. I had terrific parents, just incredible how lucky I was to have the parents I had. And um, about age 14, I decided that's it. I've had it with religion. But my parents would make me go to church every, every, <laughs> every Sunday, regardless. And so to make them happy, I became president of the Baptist Student Union on Ball State campus. And uh, it didn't mean I believed in any of it, you know, or so forth, but that uh, makes them happy. So why not? And as president, they took me to a national conference of all the presidents of Baptist Student Unions to talk about what student unions should be doing and so forth. And lo and behold, these kids from Greensboro, North Carolina showed up and they were, do, they were doing the original sit-ins and they would talk about sitting at the counter and having food pour, poured over their heads and so And I was just a farm kid from Indiana. You know, I didn't know any of this was going on. And I didn't know there was all this prejudice against blacks because I came from an all white farm community where you know, families are distanced from me, each other, and uh, or, uh, live miles away. And so um, 
uh, I was stunned. And then I said, uh, in my Indiana uh, wasp sort of way, I said, I'm going to do something about this. And so I went back and I had control of the student government. And I was the ex-editor of the student newspaper. So I had a lot of influence on the newspaper. So I thought, we're going to raise money <clears throat> and send it to Greensboro to help <clears throat> these kids with their sit-ins and so on. But then I thought, well, better check out my own backyard first before I start messing in other people's. So I went to the local head of the inn. AACP and said, is, is there any prejudice in Muncie? <laughs> Which <laughs> I'm sure he immediately thought I was crazy, but he said, who are you again? And I explained and he thinks for a while, I said, no, there's no prejudice. You don't need to be concerned. There's no prejudice in Muncie. So uh, I happened to be friends with the mayor's nephew. So I went to the mayor of Muncie, said, is there any prejudice in Muncie? And again, the same reaction, he looks at me and he thinks, now who are you again? <laughs> and then he said, nope, no prejudice in Muncie. So I went back and I had a job uh, in a girl's dormitory, scraping garbage, you know, that they would bring their plates after they finished eating up to this window. I would take them and scrape the garbage. And uh, and with working with me was this black kid, you know, same age, but different major and would scrape garbage. So I casually said to him, <clears throat> I understand there's no prejudice in Muncie. And for a couple seconds, I thought he was going to kill me. <laughs> But gradually, I got him calmed down. I said, well, explain it to me. You know, explain it to me, because the head of the NAACP and the mayor says there's no prejudice. And he, so he took me around campus and uh, showed me the situation, which at that point, the housing was fixed at all off-campus housing for Blacks was in the Black neighborhood in Muncie which was four miles away from campus. And, um, and it was uh, dangerous enough that no female student could go home back to their housing after dark, which meant that during the winter, after they had to be back at their house about five o'clock, which meant no use of the library, no use of the swimming pool, no use of the facilities. You know, they were all, all segregated off. And, um, uh, and in, in restaurants, if a mixed group came in, black, white, et cetera, everybody got served, no problem. But if an all black group went in, they're told to leave and refuse service. So I, with, with his help, I pieced all this together. <clears throat> And I changed it all. <laughs> well, we, I should say, we changed, we changed it all. Because, uh, uh, but again, as I said, I had control of the student government.
I had essentially controlled the student newspaper. And uh, and I knew all the, the key administrators. Uh, the president's son and I were good friends in high school. And so I knew I'd been over to the president's house many times. I knew him and his wife gave me a power base uh, from which to end it. But his, his explaining to me what the prejudice was and where it was and how it operated changed every, everything again. You know, it was a key seminal <clears throat> moment. I, uh, I owe him immensely. And it, it built the framework for me to be involved with, with SNCC in Mississippi, with the National Student Movement in New York City, uh, with, all, with CORE, with all these other groups. And so uh, it's an illustration of how, why these personal conversation between friends are so important. You never know. And... Uh, Another example, which will not maybe please Adam, but um, my father, my mother was a church organist. And so um, at the First Baptist Church, she was the organist starting in 1940. This was 1961 or something. Been there 21 years. I might add that my family was thrown out of the church. <laughs> my my poor parents, they were thrown out of the church because of my work on civil rights. You know, they went to my parents and said, you have to stop your son from doing this. And they said, no. And they just said, you're out. You know, you're no longer members <laughs> of our church. Wasn't funny, but I'm laughing about it uh, now. But she also was the organist at the Jewish temple every Friday night. And so... Many, many, many Friday nights, I sat up in the balcony with her and um, with Roger and I and listening to the Jewish service and uh, uh, so forth. But I had no idea that there was a prejudice against Jews. And I had no idea that anything like the Holocaust had ever happened. I was just there. <laughs> You know, listening, it it takes more than being at, in a place or listening to, to sermons or interacting with people. You got to have friends who tell you the truth about sit, situations. And um, I have many black-white examples, but... Unfortunately, not enough Jewish uh, examples because I was just a naive farm kid and thinking this is a nice service. And then Roger would blow the ram's horn uh, because the rabbi couldn't do it. And Roger was a trumpet player and he could. So he would. we were involved in things like that, but with no real understanding of what of the complexity of the situation. But with my black friend, um, David Miller, uh, I would st start things like saying, well, we have to decide who's next. 
And I'd say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," And David would stop me and say, don't you dare continue saying that. <clears throat> and I'd say, why not? I've said it my whole life. You know, my family has said it. Everybody in my community says it. And uh, he says, you can't say it because uh, it didn't used to be catch a feller by his toe. Uh, uh, it was catch the N-word by his toe and said, if you say that, you're promoting prejudice. And I'd say, geez, <laughs> I didn't know. And most whites, I think, are in that situation, you know, where they can say and do things with no conscious ill, Ill intent, but um, no one has told them not to, you know, or explain the implications of what they're, they're saying. And, um, and that's where these personal relationships and personal conversations uh, co uh, come in again. Here's a great place to pause, David. Next week, we'll learn more about those early days of cooperative learning trainings with teachers and what he foresees as the future of cooperative learning in schools. Until then, let's cooperate. Thank you for listening to the Building the Cooperative Classroom podcast, the official podcast of the Johnson & Johnson Cooperative Learning Institute. Please check out the show notes for all relevant links, including a link to our Twitter account and the Cooperative Learning Institute webpage. This podcast is copyrighted under the Creative Commons license, copyright 2021. Theme music, courtesy of Jimmy Ryan. <laughs>